Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Now we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 again, and so go ahead and turn there. Uh, Today's sermon has a very... um, Uplifting title, um, When We Die. Yeah, when We Die. So, uh, once upon a time in, uh, in the West, in the Western world, in America, um, really in the, in, the, in the more modern era of, of our history, um, even at the beginning of what I would refer to as, as a, the beginning of postmodernism, there was a sentiment a philosophical sentiment among people that it was possible to learn and attain truth. There was a belief, it was built into our culture, it was built into our societal practices, our institutions, that there were, there were absolute truths in the universe. And as we learned those absolute truths, we would get closer and closer to the truth. We believed that, that discovery and, 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 and scientific evidence and the pursuit of truth was the highest and noblest thing that any person could seek after. And so there was a value in the question, what is truth? And, and even in the hippie movement, as, as, as confused as that was and as wicked as the results of that movement were, there was a pursuit of truth. truth. You would hear people say, what is true? What is truth? Can I know truth? The question of truth was tantamount because our culture believed that it was attainable, something worth pursuing after, so we could find things worth putting our faith in. But in our late postmodern era, truth is no longer the most significant pursuit that we go after. People are no longer asking themselves what is true. That's actually a, a dated way of thinking. Today, they're asking themselves, well, what makes me happy? What is it that makes me happy? And certainly, whatever makes me happy is all the truth that I need. That's the pursuit of the world that we live in. We assume that whatever brings us pleasure has to be true. Now, I believe that there are certain questions that are too big to avoid. There are certain things that, that there's questions in our world and in our realities and in our lives that are way too big to just simply push off to the side in pursuit of pleasure and truth. Now, now we all have seasons, and in the world, in the lost world, everyone has seasons where they're distracting themselves with those pleasureful pursuits. But at the end of the day, everyone lays in their bed and asks themselves the same questions. The same questions that people have been asking themselves for thousands of years and and even 2,000 years ago here where we find ourselves in Corinth. Everyone is asking themselves, what happens when I die? There's no person that is avoiding that question. So this will be the question that we address today in our sermon. What happens to me? What happens to me when I die? This is, a, this is a big deal. It's a big question. And God's word will give us the insight, all the insight that we need today. Amen? All right, let's pray, and then we will dig in. 
Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this room full of young people. And uh, Lord, I, I, I honestly, I don't know where people are at in terms of their pursuit of truth. Certainly, uh, I know that there are people here today that have put their faith in Jesus Christ and they've staked their claim on the Bible. They've, they've devoted their lives to pursuing truth through God's word. But there are people here today uh, where in their minds and in their hearts, the verdict is still out. And um, they've not yet drawn any, any serious conclusions about what they believe about Jesus Christ or the resurrection. And so, God, I ask that you would work in those people's lives. And certainly, Lord, there are people here today that have, have come in here um, burdened by m- months and years of pleasurable pursuits. There are people here that are coming in, uh, Lord, with a sense of skepticism. Uh, but they can't deny that they've, they've tried everything else. They've, they've, they've looked for truth in sexual pleasure or they've looked for truth in their gender identity or in their race. They've looked for truth in things worth finding pleasure in uh, around every corner, in their, in their education and in their careers. Uh, they've maybe even had an opportunity to fill their bank accounts and, and to buy the things that they've always wanted to have and yet Lord, we know that none of those things ultimately satisfy. And so we're asking for your help today to reach those who've not yet decided what they believe about who you are. And we're asking that you would move in hearts and minds and that people would today decide that you are worth believing in. We need your help. And we do absolutely need to live as though you've risen from the dead. That's how we need to live. We need to live life in that reality. And so we ask for your help with that. In Jesus' name, Amen. Chapter 15, verse 35, let's read together. But some man will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may, it may chance of wheat, or some other grain. But God giveth a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own, his own body. Remember that um, the entire chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians deals with this issue of the resurrection and the implications associated with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we've been exploring all these different things that Paul has had to say over the last few weeks and months, and we've learned so much about what it looks like to have a hope in the resurrection. Now, remember that the church in Corinth was concerned about what would happen to them after they died. They weren't 100% sure. Now, they believed that Jesus Christ had resurrected from the dead. We, they, they believed that, that, that when he died, that three days later, He came back and he defeated death. They knew that. They knew that to be true. They'd put their faith in that. But it was the details surrounding that that confused them. They believed in the historical fact of Jesus Christ's resurrection. And I want to point out and remind you again that really for about 1,700 years after this letter, people overall believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was kind of a, a fact of the world, and, and almost every major religion of the world concedes the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Islam, Hinduism, 
Buddhism. Now, now, now they may have their own narrative and they may have their own spin that, that, that seeks to skew the personage of Jesus Christ and his power and his divinity. But at the end of the day, throughout history, for the most part, people have believed that Jesus rose from the dead. It was a fact. And it wasn't until the skepticism of the 1700s and the Enlightenment era that people began to doubt that. But, but these believers here in Corinth, they knew that Jesus rose from the dead, but the problem was for them that they didn't understand or have hope that the resurrection power would be extended to them. That's where things got confusing. They were unsure of their own eternal fate. And so they would maybe say something like this to themselves. Sure, Jesus rose from the dead and we believe in that power, but, but the resurrection of our lives, that's just, that, that's just spiritual. That's just symbolic of, of some greater truth we're not sure whether or not that Jesus will raise our bodies up from the grave, that he'll give us a new life. And they were very confused about the truths surrounding that. But thus far in our study, Paul has made an exhaustive argument for the resurrection of the saints. I mean, we've come through a lot of that content. And if you've been with us for the last couple of months, then I would like to believe that you've been compelled by the evidences that Paul's put before you. I think, I think that we were fairly conclusive. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And we believe that one day all those that put their faith in him will also raise from the dead. Now Paul, having made this argument, anticipated the Corinthians' train of thought. And in his letter, he asks the question that he knew that they would be thinking. And so the Corinthians, they, they, they can't seem to imagine in their minds how it is that they would be resurrected. Paul, Paul says this in verse 35. But some man will say, how are the dead raised up? Right? So he's anticipating their questions. How are the dead raised up and, and with what body do they come? If there's a hope of, of the Corinthians raising from the dead one day, if the believers are to be raised from the dead... What would that even look like? How would that go down? Do they raise up in their old body like a zombie? Okay, right? Has anybody ever watched Walking Dead? This is my second time referencing Walking Dead over the last week. So, you know, I felt like it was appropriate when I was out and, and, and with all those Southerners, you know, The Walking Dead took place in Atlanta, right? I was like, hey, you all watch The Walking Dead, right? It was like five kids were like, I mean, these are young Gen Zers. Like they've already, time has already flown, right? They're, they're already, they're on to something else. But you, this group here, certainly many people have watched The Walking Dead. And I mean, the Corinthians may have assumed, I mean, so they were curious. Like, okay, if we're going to raise from the dead, what does that actually look like? Do we just like take the form of our creepy dead bodies that have, you know, have begun to, you know, decompose on the earth? What does it look like? Or do they get a new body, a completely new body? Maybe they imagine that like reincarnation where they took on another form. Where they look different or look the same. If one raises from the dead, what does that even mean? And so these are questions that they would have been curious about. And let's be honest, these are questions that people are curious about even now. People really just have no clue because they don't have truth. And so as we've said, this is the same curiosity that, 
that every person in our world has about the afterlife as well. For, one, for anyone asking the question, how are the dead raised up? The good news is the Bible tells us very simply. It's very simple. These are very simple truths. As it concerns the New Testament and what God has to tell us, the Bible is very matter-of-fact about this topic. So let's walk through that real quick. The Bible teaches that for any person that put their faith, puts their faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and is trusted on him for the forgiveness of sin, they've been granted new life. If, if you've determined in your heart and your mind that Jesus Christ did raise from the dead as the Son of God, that he defeated death and he did that for your sin and you put your faith in those facts, then you've been forgiven of your sins and you have been granted everlasting life. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Why? Why would he do that? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I love that word everlasting. It's a wonderful word. It's, it's eternal life, but it's, it's framed in a different way. It's reminding the, us that it lasts forever. Everlasting life, the good news is that everlasting life does not begin with your death. You know, some of us are predisposed to thinking that as Christians that, the ever, that our everlasting life begins at the moment that we die. No, 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 no. It begins at the moment that you, you put your faith in Jesus Christ. The moment you believed upon him, you were immediately entering into everlasting life. The moment that you accepted Christ and received the Holy Spirit, you were sealed Sealed in that moment until the day of redemption, the day that you would be redeemed and made new, until he made claim on your life. 1 John 3.14 says, we know that we have passed from death unto life. John made that very simple. It was a very simple claim that he makes there. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life. Do you today? Do you know that you have passed from death unto life? Do you have that kind of confidence? John 5, 24 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, this is Jesus speaking, of course, hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, will not face, face everlasting judgment, but is passed away from death unto life. What a wonderful promise that we receive from our Savior before he's even given his life. What he's proclaiming for us prophetically is that for those of us that put our faith in him, we will receive everlasting life, that we will move from our death status that we were born into. Romans 5.12 is very clear about this. We were born into sin. We were born into death. We were born into the curse. But if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we immediately pass from death into life. Ephesians 2.5 says, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace, you're saved. That word quicken means to be made alive. To be quickened is to, is to, to, to move from death into life, to be made alive. Um, you know, we often talk about this when we're, when we're illustrating this, this passage. 
Ephesians talks a lot about quickening, being quickened, being made alive. And so a lot of times you hear people say that the, 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 they were cut into the quick of their finger, right? The fingernail. Like just, you guys know there's that dead part, you know, the part that you clip away. But what happens when you accidentally clip into the quick of your finger and then you eat french fries? You know what I'm talking about, Right? It stings. Why? Because that part of your finger is the quick of your finger. It's the part that's alive. And so God has made us through Jesus Christ. When we receive him and are filled with his Holy Spirit, he's taken a dead thing and made it new. He's made it alive. What a wonderful gift and a wonderful promise. We have victory over death even right now. And one day when death finds us, perhaps in old age or in tragedy, we will be laid to rest. They will put our body in a grave. And as they memorialize us and as they honor us and they conduct their services, we won't be there. Because the moment our heart stops beating, our soul and spirit will be with Christ eternally. The moment your heart stops beating, that, that, the very moment, now I'm not gonna get all weird on you and stuff, but there's these weird scientific um, studies that have been done, right, to measure, like, the metaphysical weight of the human soul. And I think this was discovered by accident. I'll have to go back and look at the research. It's been a while since I looked at it. But there's actually, there's actually some scientific research that says that the moment a person dies, they actually get a little bit lighter. I mean, I don't know how much a soul weighs, but, uh, I mean, the idea of that's pretty cool. Pretty cool to me. Pretty cool. But the moment that your heart stops beating, we're promised right here that we are, to be, we are present with the Lord. If you've put your faith in Christ, you are present with him just like that. He has redeemed or, or made claim on the seal of your life. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says this. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So no, so no matter what happens to my body, whether, whether I get lost at sea, which I, I'll wager will never happen, but, you know, I mean, the, the submarine thing had me thinking, you know? It just had me thinking, like, what would that be like? I mean, I, mean, I think all of us, the whole, listen, like, this goes back to the whole idea of, of life and death. I mean, people were thinking about the submarine. Their, their minds were on that. Why were people so preoccupied with that? I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons, but one of the things that people were doing is they were imagining themselves in such a situation. And people are afraid of dying. So no matter you, whether or not you get lost at sea and, or whether or not you're in a plane accident or if, you know, my worst nightmare, a gorilla captures me. <laughs> and pummels me to death. So that, so that my body is completely unrecognizable. This is, this, is, this is what I lay in bed thinking about. No matter, no matter how it goes down, if I die in Christ, then I will be with him eternally. But here's the deal. The church in Corinth struggled to understand that it was this simple. You know, all the most beautiful things are simple, aren't they? But they struggled because it seems so simple. And, and to be honest, many people today are making 
making life and death way too complicated. Do you guys remember King Agrippa? Remember when we were in Acts and we, we looked in, in Acts chapter 23 and, and Paul is ministering to King Agrippa. He's giving him the gospel. He shares his testimony and, and he's working on King Agrippa over time. And, and one of the things that he says to him in Acts 26, 8, what should, it be, uh, what, what should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Why does it seem so incredible to you that God would raise the dead? And yet for many people in our world, it's an incredible thought. It's, it's too beautiful perhaps to look upon. Maybe it's too simple to imagine. But here's the key point, and it's a long one, so I, you need, I'm going to give you a minute to write it down. Here's the key point. Listen, you can't feel your way to the answers on the afterlife. You can't feel your way there. You either believe the Bible or you believe something else. I mean, I mean, so many of us who struggle with Christianity, we're wrestling through things like heaven and hell and, and, and you know, final judgment and, and all these things seem so grand and so difficult. And it's much easier for us to just believe whatever we want to believe. So whatever we feel like believing, it might change from week to week or month to month. But we go the way of our feelings and we believe that truth somehow resides in the way that we feel about something. Now listen to me. This is not a topic that you're going to feel your way into. When you lay in bed at night, you will still just be terrified about what the potential of the afterlife might be. And that's why scripture is so good to us. It gives us exactly what we need to know to give us faith, to give us hope, to give us victory, to give us surety. That we might not be afraid of what our life, in the, our life in the future life has to offer us. And so many people are afraid because they've been feeling their way, their way to truth. There's no room for you to say, you can have your truth and I'll have my truth. You know, I have my truth. Baloney nonsense that people say all the time. My truth. If the Bible is true, then whatever contradicts scripture is false. We don't get to mingle it with other things. We don't get to, we don't get to, 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 to cut it with world, the world's philosophy to make it more palatable. We don't get to do that. We don't get to throw some things away and adopt new things. We don't get to reinvent the apostles' doctrine. and We don't get to we don't get to recant on things that the word of God says. If we call ourselves a Christian, by necessity, that means that you believe this book. This book. And at the end of the day, you don't get to have your own truth. You have to believe what it says. The Bible doesn't make room for relativism or, or plurality. It doesn't make room for that. So as it concerns the resurrection of our dead bodies... We don't necessarily have to understand the biology or the physics behind, you know, what happens to a body that has, over time, it's been reduced to dust. Or we don't have to, we don't have to ask too many questions about, well, what if a gorilla pummeled you to death and strew your body throughout the jungle into various parts so that your bones are only found years later and they, 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 they have to look at your DNA to discover that it was... Like, like, we don't have to worry about that, thank God. 
I mean, how is God going to put that body back together? It seem, that seems difficult. No, listen, we just need to believe the simple promise of Scripture. If Jesus created the universe, if it was his breath that brought us life, if by his own power he rose from the dead, then raising us from the dead is nothing for him. It's nothing for him. And once we understand those simple truths, then we can, we can begin to understand the paradox that Paul presents to us here in verse 36. He says this, Thou fool. And I love it when he starts that with, you know, that, that thou fool. Like, I mean, like, it means that, right? Like, there's no explaining this away. He's like, I mean, you freaking idiot. Now, I mean, what he's saying is, what he's saying is, look, look, don't be ignorant on this matter. You know, he uses this language in Galatians as well because he's, tr he's so desperate to get them to understand where the falsity is. This is his way of, of, of snapping them into attention. And he says, he says, thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bear grain, and, 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 and the word grain here means seed, it may chance of wheat or of some other grain or seed. So the Apostle Paul presents an illustration here that's supposed to help us better understand the greater truth of what God's doing, the literal truth. And so many of you know, you know I like to garden. I mean, some of you don't know, but I'm telling you now. I enjoy gardening. The springtime is my favorite time because it means that I get to get out in the yard and in the sun. I get to dig and, and get dirty. And so I, I like flowers, okay? I mean, I look, look at me. I look like a flower guy, don't I? Right? I'm a botanist, amateur botanist. Now, I actually don't know. I don't know. I can't actually pronounce any of the uh, Latin terms for any of the flowers that I plant. I don't even bother. I just like, that looks pretty, and then I shove it in the cart. But I'm trying, and I really do enjoy it. I love it. I love it. So, so I've got perennials in the yard, and I planted those. And those, those every year, they come back on their own. I like, I like native Missouri flowers um, because they're, they're hardy in the soil. And like, I, I like it. I like watching them, and I like moving them, and, and, and I like giving flowers away to friends. And so uh, if, if this coming spring, if anybody needs flowers, I've got ton of, a ton of bulbs and plants that I'll split, and I'll give to you just saying. I mean, you got to come and get them, but, but, uh, but I enjoy it a lot. Now, there are certain uh, flower beds at my house um, and, and pots that I like to plant annuals in. And so what I'll do is I'll get seed. I'll buy seed. It's really cheap to get seeds. And, and so you get seeds in the springtime, and then you, you put them where you want them, and magically they, they, they grow, right? Like it feels magical anyway because I do very little. I, I water them a couple times a week in the sun, and, but they take care of themselves. You put them in the ground, and they, they come back. Now, when one buries a seed in the ground, by, by, by the very nature of it, the shell itself dies. The, sh the shell of the seed, it dies. It deteriorates, and inside that seed, it produces life. And so as the seed dies... It releases the life of the flower. It releases the beauty. And so what we see is that death, death becomes life. It's an illustration for us 
of what's supposed to happen to us when we die. Listen to how Paul describes it. He says, And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be. Okay, so there's a body that is and there's a body that shall be. And, and you don't sow, you don't put in the ground the body that shall be, you put in the, in the body that was. So he says that the seed that you plant in the ground doesn't look the same when it rises up. You put one body in the ground, but when it rises up, it's a new body. It's changed. And, and generally, what we know of flowers is that what was put in the ground is this ugly little thing. It's about this big. It's just gray or brown colored. And you put it in the ground, and when it rises up, it becomes something spectacular and new. It's almost, for, for the feeble mind, it would seem almost impossible that that flower came from such a base and common thing. It's completely new in the way that it looks. But pay close attention. That seed looks different in its final form, but it's still the same flower. I can't expect to plant zinnia seeds and get periwinkles. I chose periwinkles because it's a funny word. So Seth laughed. At, but also periwinkles are beautiful. They're, they're small white flowers. They sometimes have like a pink middle. But you can't plant zinnia seeds and get periwinkles. Zinnia seeds produce zinnias. And periwinkle seeds produce periwinkles. You understand? Similarly, when they put me in the ground, it will be a carnal seed. But when it raises up, it will come up as something more perfect. It will have an eternal form. The scripture says, it may chance of wheat or some other grain. Whatever seed is planted... No matter what that seed is, it is nothing like the flower that manifests. But whatever is manifest will be consistent with what's planted. So when, I, when my body raises from the dead to meet God in the sky, okay? Now, we've talked about this. I don't want to go back and rehash this, okay? But, but for those of you who weren't here, there's coming a day where our bodies will be resurrected and they'll meet our soul and spirit with Christ. Or perhaps the rapture will come and we all at once, body, soul, and spirit, will meet the Lord in the sky. We sang about this in the last service. Whether we walk the veil with him or, or meet him in the sky, right? Either one. I'm stoked about it because the end result we know will be a resurrected body and a new form. But here's the deal. What, whatever is put into the ground it will certainly be me. I mean, in all of its weaknesses, it will be me. I mean, people will look at my body. Hopefully, I'm going to do a closed casket because I'm not into all that. But it'll be closed casket. And you'll look, you'll look at the casket. And I'll be, I, Brandon's in there. You might, you might. I know you're in there, buddy. I'll be in there. It'll be me. It'll be me. But listen, it'll be the carnal me, Okay. And, 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 and it'll be put into the ground, and what's raised out, it'll still be me. It'll still be me, but it'll be a different me, be a better me. Now, let's consider the example of Jesus Christ to give us a little bit of insight on this. Can we do that? So let's consider what Jesus says. First of all, in John chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Okay, so what is he doing here? He's talking, he's speaking prophetically to his disciples about the fact that he himself would die and then raise again. 
He's saying his body would die and go into the ground, but it would raise again. And this is our promise too. Not only that he will be risen from the dead, but us as well. Now look at what 1 John 3, 2 says. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we, what we shall be. Okay, so what's it saying? It doesn't yet appear what we shall be. Do we know exactly what that's gonna look like? No. It's gonna look amazing. It's gonna be glorious. It's gonna be cool. But we don't yet know what that appearing will look like. But, but we know that when he shall appear, when he shall appear to come gather us, to get us, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And so the moment that our body sees him for, 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 for all that he is, we will become in a moment like as he is. What an amazing promise. Now, we have to ask ourselves, well, what does that even mean? What will he be like? Well, we get some clues in scripture. Keep in mind that Jesus rose from the dead and when he rose from the dead, besides on the road uh, to, to um, Emmaus, remember that when he was on the road and the guys were walking with him, hanging out with him, they're like, this dude's cool. I never met him before. But then they find out later, it's like, oh wait, it was Jesus and they just didn't have eyes to see him. Okay, so that's the one exception to this rule. Overall, when Jesus rose from the dead, people recognized him as Jesus. They saw his face and they saw Christ. Okay? And so what, what do we learn from that? What do we gain from that? Um, we gain the fact that we'll probably look something like what we look like now. We'll be recognizable at some level as what we look like now. We, 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 will, we will likely be recognizable as ourselves in our resurrected forms. But also there's something I want you to consider, and I think this is really cool. Now remember, remember in John chapter 20 and Luke 24, after Jesus rose from the dead, he was doing things like pass through walls like suddenly showing up in the room, like the disciples are hanging out and they're doing their thing, they're talking, maybe they're praying and then he just suddenly, he's there and he's like. <laughs> and, and, and they get startled and they're like, they freak out a little bit, right? Because Jesus in his, in his divine form, in his eternal form, can do things that the human body, the regular human body can't. And so we find him doing things like even traversing the universe in, in, le, in like the blink of an eye, like it's nothing. Like it's nothing. So he has the ability in his divine form, his ultimate form, is that what they call it in Pokemon? What do they call it? What? Someone knows. The evol yeah, the, evo the final evolved form. And Jesus' final evolved form, he's doing all kinds of stuff. He's like, you know, just taking off doing stuff that he wasn't doing when he, was, when he was trapped in a physical body. That's cool. That's really cool to consider. Will such things also be possible for us in our eternal form? I have to assume so. Also consider the form that Jesus took on the Mount of Transfiguration when he gave his disciples a glimpse of his divine form. Matthew 17, 1 says this, And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And so, you know, will we shine as the sun? I, I have to assume that we will, because we will be like him. Here's the deal. Here's, here's the main point that we need to come to. Here's our next key point. Whatever God has in store for our bodies, it will be glorious. 
whatever God has in store for the resurrected believer, it will be glorious. We don't, we don't know the details. We don't, we don't know what that'll look like, but all the evidences we find in scripture, it's gonna be way better than what we have now. I mean, y'all are young. And you might not hear me on this, but I'm 40. And you know what? Sometimes my knees hurt, okay? And I can see, I can see, maybe it's a far off, maybe it's like a glass darkly, but I can see old age for what it is, you know? I can see, I can see out there, I, I can see myself in the mall walking, <laughs> right? Trying to keep this dilapidated body, just keep it going, I'll be like, Probably wearing rock ports. <laughs> but, but I have a hope. Like all that's pretty easy to endure and to consider knowing that one day I'll get the body that God wants me to have. Now for those of you uh, that uh, have gardened before, you know that, that sometimes you put seed in the ground and it doesn't always produce. I mean, sometimes you put, you put seeds in the ground and, and, and nothing comes up. You may have watered it, it may have been in the sun, but, but some seeds die and they do not rise into newness of life. And this is the sad reality of our world too. It's a sad reality of mankind that, that for mankind, some seeds will die and not experience the resurrection of Christ. Some people will die and their soul and their spirit will descend into hell. As their bodies lay in the grave, their soul and spirit will experience the torment that was originally intended for the fallen angel, angels but, but has been bestowed upon all those who've chosen to sin. Now their bodies one day too will be reunited with their soul and spirit, but their ultimate destiny will be the lake of fire. And I think that reality is uh, terrible. And it's not what Christ wants for you. I mean, imagine for a moment, just, just try to put yourself in his shoes. For thousands of years, mankind was trying to get to God by their own means. That is, until he came, willingly. He had to quit the glory of heaven. He had to step away from his throne room. He had to put on flesh and come and experience the, the trauma of childbirth and, and to be raised in, in, you know, in a world of poverty and oppression. He had to work with his own hands. He had to experience the temptation and the trials that come with living in our bodies. He accepted that willingly. Why? Why would he do that? Only to be led to a cross where he would be beat beyond recognition, nailed to that cross and mocked openly by the very creation that he breathed life into, spat upon, the beard torn from his faith. For what? For what? To what end? Because he loved you. And so many of us are too selfish to even see it. 
And we're so desperate to follow the pursuits of our heart that we refuse the simple truths that are before us. It's so simple. It's so simple that God would have to die in our place because we can't redeem ourselves. It only makes sense. We need to receive that. And if we don't, we will be among those seeds that never blossom into truth. Verse 38, Paul says, But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All of us will return to the dust. But how many of us will rise to the newness of life that he's, that he's given to all that believe on him? Does your body have eternal life germinating within it through the spirit of God? Can you honestly say that you know? Do you know? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt? Do you have confidence that you know where you're going when you die? Can you honestly say that you're looking forward to that very moment? Now I want to I point something out to you, and this is a truth. This is a truth for Christians that has been for 2,000 years now. I mean, immediately after the church was established, immediately after God extended the Holy Spirit to those believers in the upper room, they went out into the streets and they started preaching. And almost immediately, immediately after that came persecution. And that persecution that came, it, it lasted a really long time. People were giving their lives for Jesus Christ. They were giving their lives for the cause of Christ. And when they found themselves standing before authorities, they would not recant what they believed about God. They refused to deny it. And they suffered many, many, many different, different horrific deaths. Deaths akin to the crucifixion itself. Tortures beyond belief. And even today in our world, Christians are actively giving their lives for what they believe in, refusing to recant. Now, I want to ask you, what causes a person under the harshest of circumstances, at the point of a gun, at the blade of an axe, at the hands of a torturer, what leads a person to stand in hope and accept death with a smile on their face? What could possibly bring someone to that level of confidence that whatever may come, they'll receive gladly? The hope of the resurrection. The belief that no matter what happens to us in our flesh, that Jesus Christ stands with us and he's made us alive. And he will claim what belongs to him. And the moment that our heart stops beating is the moment that we stand with him in glory. That's true hope. And very few people in our world have that kind of hope. I want to invite the worship team up. And here's something... Um, Here's something that I want to consider as they come up. I want you to give me a moment. Don't put away. Don't put away yet. Come on up. It's okay. I'm not talking. You're special. You get to come up. 
But be quiet. Don't be loud back here. Okay? Right. Now, here's the deal. And this is, this, is the, this is the question. This is the invitation for every Christian in the room. The truth is that you have the hope of Christ within you. You have the hope of the resurrection. But you're not doing anything with that. Like, you know where you're going when you die, and you feel really good about that. Right? You can sleep like a baby. But do you live in that reality? Because if you did, who wouldn't you tell about Christ? I mean, you're going to hide that under a bushel? You're going to tuck that away like it just belongs to you? No, 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 no. Christ came from the world. Are you willing to extend the truth of Christ's resurrection to other people the way that he extended it to you? I mean, there's some of you in this room who are delusional enough to believe that going to work every day and just acting good is good enough for you to be obeying God. And the truth is, listen, people don't come to Christ unless you open your mouth. People don't come to Christ unless you go to them with intention and call them to consider what it means to live a life victorious in Christ, to put away sin, to believe on him for what his word says. People don't come to Christ by accident. Christ says, go ye therefore. He's asking for you to go and to teach people what you've learned about him, to share that hope. Are you doing it? Or are you letting the friends in your life, the family members in your life, your coworkers, die as seeds in a bed, never to raise into newness of life. You're just letting that go like it's nothing. First Corinthians 15:34, if you backtrack a little bit, says, "Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. Some have not the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame." To my shame. Christian, what a glorious gift you've been given. What are you doing with it? I would would wager to say you're not living in victory unless you're preaching the gospel. Now I also recognize that there are people in the room today that are hearing all this. And you're hearing me talk about Christ. And you're hearing me talk about salvation and this is foreign to you. And that's okay. You're not judged for that. This is a moment of invitation for you. If you're coming to a place, even right now, that you believe that Jesus Christ did die for you, and you're beginning to understand for the first time that maybe it's not your good works that are going to get you to heaven, but it's believing and putting your faith in Jesus Christ that will get you there, you're believing that for the very first time right now, I want to invite you to come grab a hold of somebody and pray through that and to work through that and to figure out what you truly believe. Because it is the greatest decision that you'll ever make. It's the most important decision that you'll ever make. And at the end of the day, it's the only, it's the only question that lingers, that answers, it's, the, the answer answers everything. If you, if you get this one question answered, it unlocks all of reality. 
So I'm asking you, come and see. Come and find out. Come test one of our counselors. There'll be some people lined up here ready to talk to you about the Bible and what the Bible says about salvation. Come talk to them. Come find out. I'm inviting you. Are you hearing me? Let's get right with the Lord today. He's worth being right with. Amen? Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its promises. Lord, thank you for uh, just fixing everything. I, I, can't, I can't wait to see you. I, I can't wait to throw my arms around you and to, and to finally know you, body, soul, and spirit. You've been such a, a dear friend to me. And you've brought me through the very darkest times in my life. You've, you've, you've supplied grace at every turn. Thank you, God. And thank you for the promise that one day you will fix this, this body, this weak body. And you'll make it new. I love that promise. It brings me a level of hope that, that, you know, I just, I could never experience that kind of hope without you. And so I'm asking, Lord, right now that if there's anyone in here today that, that lacks hope, who's struggling to find peace, who has unanswered questions, Lord, I pray that you would give them the confidence to come and to seek someone out. That maybe, maybe they'd come forward or, or maybe they would, they would join a Bible study and they would, just, they would just go to Bible study and they'd just see what the word of God says. That they would, they would try that for a season and just bring all their skepticism, all their questions and just find out what does the Bible say? But whatever that looks like, Lord, I pray that you would seek and pursue people relentlessly and that you would not let them be that seed, the, the seed that dies and, and nothing is born. Lord, thank you for new life. We're grateful for you. We need you. In Christ's name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.